Good morning. So when I was a kid, there was a conversation that took place in my, the house that I grew up in that was very memorable. I'm not sure that I've even ever told this story as an adult, but I still remember it because of how memorable it was. You know, most of the time as an adult, you only remember the stories that you've told over and over again. I don't know if I've ever told this, but, but I remember it because it was just, it was a very significant conversation. We were at the house that I grew up in. It must have been like Thanksgiving or Christmas or sometime like that because it took place around the dining room table and I remember all of my extended family was there. So we were all sitting around the table and we were playing Pictionary. And you know what story this is? <laughs> okay, sorry, that she was there. So we were all sitting around the table playing Pictionary, and, and some of us in the family must have said something that was like silly or stupid. Maybe we didn't know how to draw well, or we didn't know what the word was on the card. So my brother made a joke. He wanted to make the joke um, that he wasn't related to the rest of us. You know, like we we're all stupid, and we didn't know how to draw the thing. And so, he, he wanted to make, and so the joke he made, after everybody messed up, he said, oh, I'm glad I'm adopted. That was the, that was, and he, he thought that would be funny, right? I'm not genetically related to you guys, right? I'm glad I'm adopted. And then my mom looked at him and went, but you were adopted. <laughs> and there was this like kind of panicky horror look on his face because this is, this is what he thought was happening in that moment. Um, she was, my mom didn't joke around about stuff like that. And she said it like she was dead serious, okay? And she was. And so he looked at her and he thought, well, what was happening in that moment is that, um, that she was not his biological mother, that she had kept it a secret from him all these years, right? Which meant she'd lied to him his whole life, you know, because she tells stories, you know, oh, 17 hours of labor and blah, 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 right? And so, so he was thinking, whoa, she has been lying to me my whole life and she is just now revealing that I'm adopted in my 20s. That's how old my brother was when this conversation took place. He's, she waited until I was in my 20s to finally reveal it to me casually in the middle of a game of Pictionary in front of the rest of the family. And so he got real, like, angry. You know, he was, he was like, oh, I'm glad I'm not adopted. And then as soon as she said it, he was like, don't say that. Why'd you say that? And then she looked at him and said, don't you remember when I married Joe Valella, he adopted you? Oh, now here's the, this is the part of the story that's important to know. So my mom's second husband would be my dad. My biological father is the second husband that my mom had. And so when she married him, she had a son with her, a stepson from, you know, previous marriage, her son, um, that would be his stepson, right? And so she brings him along. And so when my mom married my father in her second marriage, my brother, was a, he, he adopted my brother. He knew that. That was not a secret in the family. He had known that from back at the time that he was like 12 years old, right? He was cool with that. That wasn't a problem at all. He, he thought she was saying something different. He thought she was saying that she's not his biological mom, and she's just revealing it for the first time. And so, so anyway, so she said, no, you are adopted. Don't you remember? Your father adopted you. So that conversation just really is memorable to me, maybe because it was like emotional whiplash, because it was like, it was like, oh, I'm glad I'm adopted, <laughs> you know, and then it was like, what you are, and then, I can't believe, who are you to do that, and then, you know, you Joe, <laughs> um, and so, and that's what happened, it was like happy, and then anger, and then, oh, this is so funny, and he started laughing, and then she started laughing, and they both started laughing together, then everybody at the table started laughing, I was like 11 or 12 at this point, going like, why is everyone laughing, like, I didn't even understand what was so funny, and then they were laughing so hard that they weren't able to explain what they were laughing about, so you're sitting there waiting while everybody's laughing for them to stop laughing so they can tell you what it was about, and so it's just the whole, that whole story just sticks out to me as really memorable, and I thought about it this week because of the passage that we're going to learn, that sometimes there are words, and the words seem to mean something at first glance, and then other words come along 
that clarify the meaning of the original words. Sometimes there are words that we hear or words that we read and we go, okay, I know what that means. And then some other words come along and then we go, oh, oh, okay, no, it doesn't mean what I thought it means, right? And that's what happened in that story and I think that's what's going to happen today as we look at the passage of Scripture we're going to look at. Today's passage of Scripture has a letter in it, a letter that was written by the early church and it says some things that I think are quite confusing. They're shocking considering the rest of the Bible. And they're words that I think, I think don't mean what they seem to mean the very first time you hear them or the very first time you read them. But before I get into that, let me go ahead and introduce like, this, the, the, this whole series and catch us up to the point that we are in the story because we're jumping right in the middle of a story. We are now in a series called Life of Paul, Series 2, Part two. So the reason it's series two is we already did a series on the life of Paul this year where we covered a huge part of the, like a huge section of the early part of his life, like 14 weeks on the life of Paul. And then we took a break and we talked about some other stuff. And now we're coming back. And so this is series two and we're picking up where we left off. So we're saying part two. Part two just means like part two since we just got back to Paul last week. Okay. But really this is like part 16. Right? There's a whole bunch of things we've learned about Paul's life up to this point. So I'm going to go ahead and summarize the story up to this point, and I'll be real quick about it. Real quick. Once upon a time, there was a guy named Paul. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. He wanted them jailed, wanted them killed, and then he converted to Christianity and became one of those Christians that he wanted to jail and wanted to kill. He actually was, uh, J- Jesus Christ appeared to him, and he converted not only to Christianity, but he became a pastor and a missionary. At one point, about 10 years into his Christian life, he is a pastor, in a, a Bible teacher in a town called Antioch. And then from Antioch, God calls him to be a missionary. And so he gets on a boat and he goes across the Mediterranean Sea and ends up um, ministering and uh, reaching people, Gentiles particularly, who did not know the gospel. And it's an area that we now call Turkey, but the area back then that he was in probably would have been known, of, known as Galatia. So he goes to Galatia, tells all these people about Jesus, then comes back to Antioch, where he had been a pastor. And while he's there, there are these people in the church, Jewish people and Gentile people, who had come to know Jesus Christ. And then some false teachers arrive. False teachers show up and say to the Gentile portion of the congregation, hey, guess what? None of y'all are Christians. Okay, you have to be circumcised to be saved. If you're a Gentile, you have to become a Jewish person in order to become a Christian person. That the only way to, to really know God, the only way to turn to God is first, you must realize he has written this Old Testament and there's all these rules that were given to the Israelites and you have to conform to all of them, including the sign of the covenant, circumcision. If you have not been circumcised, you don't even know God, you, you're, not, you're not saved at all. So they show up and tell all these people, you're not Christians, there's a whole other thing you've got to do. You've got to obey the laws, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. So, of course, this is very unsettling and causes a problem in the church. Paul and Barnabas are there. Barnabas was his partner throughout that whole missionary journey that I just referred to earlier. Um, Paul Paul and Barnabas are there, and they um, say to, you know, the the congregation, that's not true, you know? So you've got one group of people saying, you've got to be circumcised to be saved, and Paul and Barnabas are going, nuh-uh. And the other group is saying, no, for real, you have to obey it. And they're saying, no, not for real. In fact, we went... To Jerusalem, I've talked with John and Peter and James, you know, like the original people who hung out with Jesus. Like I I checked to make sure the gospel that I'm preaching matches with what Jesus' earliest messengers were saying. So I'm telling you, it's true. You can just go straight from Gentile to Christian. And then I'm assuming the false teachers, they also said, "Mm, well, I also know Peter and James and John. We came from Jerusalem and we're telling you that our gospel is the true one. You have to do it our way. So at that point, Paul says, okay, BRB, 
And he says, he decides to go to Jerusalem. He's going to check with them, get them to be the tiebreaker, and then come back and report to Antioch. He's, I'll be right back. I'm going to go check. I mean, I say be right back. It's weeks. This is hundreds of miles. Weeks to go to Jerusalem to figure out what's going on and then come back to Antioch and say, okay, I checked with them and this is, this is the truth. So that brings us up to last week. So last week, our associate pastor here, Doug Davison, preached on the passage where Paul shows up in Jerusalem and says, hey, some people are saying you've got to be circumcised to be saved. We have been saying no to that. What say you? And they have this meeting that's been known as the Jerusalem Council. And the people in Jerusalem, the earliest followers of Jesus, they all get together, they all talked about it. And Pastor Doug passed, covered all this last week when he learned, when he taught us this passage. Um, and basically what happens is they say, Paul and Barnabas, you're right. You do not have to be circumcised to be saved. You do not have to conform to all the laws of Moses to be saved. That's not how salvation works. It is by grace. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's, if the story ended there, and that is where we ended last week, but if the story ended there, there'd be a big problem. You want to know what would be a big problem? If the story ended there, you'd have Paul and Barnabas showing up and going, hey, are we right or are we not right? And Peter and James going, you're right. And then Paul and Barnabas goes, <laughs> figured. And then... They show up in Antioch, and they go, hey, we went, we checked in Jerusalem, and guess what? And they're sitting there going, yeah, what? What did they say? And Paul and Barnabas would have said, we were right. <laughs> Those guys were wrong, and we were right. We went and checked. Turns out we were right. And what would the church in Antioch have done? They would have gone, well, that's a little suspicious. Like, all that does is put us right back where we were. You saying that that's what they said, right? What, what did they say, right? And so Paul and Barnabas would have said, they said we were right. Well, we know you say they say that, that you're right, but what do they say, right? There would need to be... Paul and Barnabas can't go back home alone and empty-handed just trying to convince the people of a conversation that they didn't get to witness. Does that make sense? That's why this passage is in here. That's why the next thing that happened happened. And so that's our passage today. Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 22. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Acts 15, starting in verse 22. Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church, this would be the Jerusalem church, they have not gone back to Antioch yet, okay, the original mothership church. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to select men who were among them and to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now, why are they sending men with Paul and Barnabas? Can you guess? Yes, to confirm so that they're not sitting there going, oh, we swear that's what they said. No, they're sending men with Paul and Barnabas. So who'd they pick? The, um, those who were among them, they chose to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers, so the brothers there in Jerusalem. Now, this Judas is not the Judas that betrayed Jesus. Judas was a super common name back then, like John or Bob or whatever. Okay, so this is just, this is another guy named Judas called Barsabbas and Silas. These are both leading men, so they picked leaders, they picked influential people in the church, and they said, you go with them to confirm that this all happened. Not only do they send these people, but they also wrote a letter. It wasn't just two people that are saying, hey, this is what they said, but you're also going to take with you a letter written by the Jerusalem church that takes sides on the debate, who was right, who was wrong. We will write it down, and so you can deliver the letter, and you can have eyewitnesses sitting there to confirm it all. So... They sent Judas and Silas, both leading men among the brothers, and they wrote this letter to be delivered by them, they being the church of Jerusalem. They wrote this letter to be delivered by them, them being Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas. Here's the letter. From the apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the brothers among the Gentiles in Antioch 
Syria and Cilicia. That's the area that Antioch was in. Greetings. Because we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts, we have unanimously decided to select men and send them to you along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul which you can already start to tell who was right and who was wrong, can't you? But unauthorized people, sorry about them, beloved Barnabas and Paul, okay? So, um, beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who will personally report the same things by word of mouth. So you don't just get a letter, you also get two guys there going, yep, we were there at the meeting, this is what really happened. For, this is how it ends, it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual morality. You will do well if you keep, yourself, keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. And that's how the letter ends, okay? Then, we'll just keep going. So that's the letter. Now, they haven't gone back yet, so here's what happens. Verse 30. Then, being sent off... This is Judas, Silas, Paul, and Barnabas with the letter in hand. Being sent off, they went down to Antioch, and after gathering the assembly, they delivered the letter. When they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement, right? It was considered to be an encouraging letter. Oh, this is great news. Both Judas and Silas, who were also prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and strengthened them with a long message. So Judas and Silas didn't just repeat the words of the letter. They had a whole bunch of other words to say. Right? They taught the people a bunch of stuff. They strengthened them with a long message. After spending some time there, they were sent back in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch, teaching and proclaiming the message of the Lord. So what we see in this passage is that Paul and Barnabas do not have to go home empty-handed. They have a letter from the Church of Jerusalem, and they have got Judas and Silas there with them to add their words and say, this is what happened in, with the meeting. This is what happened at the Jerusalem Council. This is, this, that letter really was written by them. This is all legit. This is what they decided. This is what they said. And so Paul and Barnabas' gospel, which had been the thing that people were debating about, has now been confirmed in front of those people. And we have this letter. And it's an interesting letter. I don't know how many of you have read it before. This is not a passage of scripture that gets taught on very often. But the letter, I would say a couple of things about it. First of all, um, the letter doesn't explain everything. If you look at it, it's from verses 23 to 29, and it's a pretty short letter, just a few sentences. The letter certainly does not explain everything you'd want to know about this topic. The letter doesn't even explain everything that took place in the Jerusalem Council, right? All the stuff that we learned last week, right? The Doug said, well, Peter said this, and James said this. That stuff's not in the letter, right? Not, the details are not there. Now, this letter, I, I would say it says enough for you to know which side was right and which side was wrong, but it doesn't give all the details. When I say it gives enough, I'm just saying when you read through the letter, you can figure out who the bad guys are and who the good guys are, right? There's these people that are saying circumcision is the thing that saves you, and then you've got Paul and Barnabas saying, no, it doesn't, and then they receive this letter in reaction to that that starts off with these words. This is the first main, like right after greetings, it says in verse 24, because we have heard that some without our authorization went out from us and troubled you with their words and unsettled your hearts. You could, I mean, you, the, the very first letter starts to give away who's right and who's wrong, right? And then later on, we get to, yeah, beloved Paul and Barnabas, but there's these other people. They don't even have names, just some, okay? Who are these people? We don't know. We have heard that some people with no names, I mean, they had names, but we don't know them. These people went, and this is important, without our authorization, 
right? Those are not our people. I mean, yeah, they're our people. They went out from us. Yes, they're from our town. Yeah, we know them. But they went out without our authorization. The message that they have does not, like we do not, they did not have our authority. They were not speaking on our behalf, right? They went out and said a message that is not our message, right? And they troubled you and they unsettled your hearts. And so when you look at the letter, you can see that it says enough. It shows who was authorized and who was not. It talks about who's unsettling. It commends Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Jude as the talkers to explain this stuff. And so, like I said, it's enough. It's good enough that we now know how to settle this dispute. However, as I said, it doesn't, explain, it doesn't say everything you'd think it would say. It actually doesn't. It says it, it sides with the people, Paul, Barnabas, Silas, Jude, but it doesn't even explain the issue. Like you would think, they went down there because the question was, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? You would think that the letter would say, greetings, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Farewell. You know, or maybe, maybe they would make the letter longer than that, but if it was going to be a short letter, you'd think at least it would say, like, this is the side that's correct. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say circumcision doesn't save you. It doesn't say you are saved by grace and not by works. Like, the stuff that they said in the Jerusalem council... Most of it didn't make it into the letter. The letter doesn't say, oh, Gentiles and Jews are saved the same way by faith in Jesus Christ. It just says who was right, who was wrong, and then there's a list of four things at the end of the letter that we will get to in a minute. And so this is what I will say about that. So when I look at this letter, I realize it's missing a lot of details, but it's fine. It's, it, it's, it says enough, and it's important to remember this. In the original context, this letter did not show up alone, right? It didn't show up to Antioch alone. What did it show up with? Four people who could explain it. Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas. The letter specifically says that Judas and Silas will, ex will explain this. Like they will report. They will, by word of mouth, say these things. So the, the thing I would say is this letter, though it is missing a lot of details, is, is fine because the letter shows up with four people who were at the meeting that the letter came from. And so if they had any questions, if there was anything that needed to be clarified, if they said, what does it mean to not eat something that's been strangled? There, were, there would be four people standing there that they could ask that to, right? The message could be clarified. They can ask Paul or Barnabas or Judas or Silas. But here's our problem. We don't have Paul or Barnabas or Judas or Silas here to ask our questions to. We only have the letter, Right? We have the letter without any, any, any clarification. But, well, what did this mean? What did this mean? We just have the letter. That's all we have 2,000 years later. And you might say, okay, well, what's the problem with that? Is there any part of this letter that is like, difficult to understand? <laughs> yes. I don't know if you caught it the first time I read it. The last two sentences are really difficult. What in the world? How did they get in there? When I read this letter, and I've read it several times now, I go through and I go, okay, greetings. I know what that means. Okay, people went without our authorization. I got that. A beloved Paul and Barnabas, I get what that's saying. Judas and Silas will personally report the same things. I, I got it, got it, got it, got it. And then, verses 28 and 29. Did you catch them? Let me read them to you. This is how the letter ends. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things, that you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual morality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. Why in the world are those four rules tucked in there? Like, how did that get in the letter? Especially when you think about the purpose of the letter. If they're trying to say circumcision doesn't save you, why would they say, okay, these are the wrong people, here are the right people, and don't do these four things? 
why in the world are those things in there? And if Judas or Silas were here, we could ask them, why is that in there? But they're not. And if all I had were this letter, and I did not have the rest of the Bible to compare it to, I think the words in this letter at first seem to be saying something that has got to be different than what it means. I think that what the words of these letters look like to me to be saying something that is shocking and confusing. Well, maybe actually, if I didn't have the rest of the Bible, it wouldn't be shocking or confusing. It would be consistent with itself. I would just go like, okay, I guess that's it. Without the rest of the Bible and without Silas and Judas here, this is what I see seems to me, and maybe you feel the same way. As you read through the letter, it seems that these, this list of four things could only be two things, okay? Or they, be most likely, the way you'd interpret this letter all by itself would be either these are the four things that save you or these are the four sins that you need to not do. It seems to me that that would be what I would assume this letter says. And that's why I brought up in my opening illustration that there are times when we hear words and the first, like at first glance, we hear the words, glance and hear, that's bad. But I don't know what, you know what I mean, right? When we, at, at the first time we hear it, we go like, oh, oh. And then when more words come along, we go, oh, not what it meant. And so that's what I think is going to happen here. But let me go ahead and just first start with what's the way you take it at first? So it seems like it's got to be these are the things that save you or these are the list of sins. So let me explain it. What do I mean by the things that save you? What I'm saying is if there's a, if there's a letter that was written in response to the question, does circumcision save you? Should that burden be placed upon the Gentiles that they have to do that to be saved? And then they write a letter back that says, don't listen to those author, unauthorized people. Listen to Judas and Silas. And, it, and this is how it ends. It was the Holy Spirit's decision, so this is a God thing, not us, and ours, to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things. What greater burden, meaning what? Well, the great burden that they were talking about was circumcision, and they're saying, no, we're not putting that burden on you, but rather these things, abstain from food offered to idols and from blood and from eating anything that's been strangled and from sexual morality. So I would think, if I didn't know, anything, if I didn't know better, I would look at this and go, it sure sounds like what this letter is saying is, hey, Gentiles in Antioch, don't listen to the false teachers. Paul and Barnabas are right, okay? You're not saved by circumcision. You're saved by not eating meat offered to idols. You're saved by not eating blood. You're saved by not eating animals that have been strangled and by keeping away from sexual immorality. Those are the four things that save you. Farewell. That's what I would think. Well, is that what it means? It couldn't mean that. And the reason it couldn't mean that is because this letter does not exist randomly. This letter comes from a meeting, the meeting that Doug preached on last week, the Jerusalem Council. And the conclusion of the Jerusalem Council was not that. Like, they didn't say, this is the way that you're saved. So I'll just read to you just a portion from last week's text, last week's passage. Doug read this to us last week. Peter stood up in Acts chapter 15, and in verse 10, he said this. Now then... Why are you testing God by putting a yoke on the disciples' necks that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that they are, they being the Gentiles. This is Peter talking, right? So the we is the Jewish people, the they is the Gentile people. Peter got up and said, we weren't able to obey all the Jewish laws. Gentiles aren't going to be able to do it either. We think that we are saved by our faith in Christ, by the grace that Jesus gave us. And we think that's the same way that they are saved. So if that's what came up in the Jerusalem Council, and then that meeting birthed this letter, 
then this letter couldn't possibly mean these are the four things that these are the four works of the law that you have to do for you to be saved, right? It doesn't match what had just prompted the letter. Okay, well, then that leaves us with the other theory, which is, well, maybe they're not the four ways to be saved. Maybe they're just the four things you're not supposed to do. Like, these are the four things Gentiles can't do. So let's go ahead and put it back up here. So maybe this is all they're saying is, hey, you're saved by grace. You're saved by trusting in Jesus, Gentiles and Jewish people alike. However, the Holy Spirit and us want to say to you that we put no greater burden on you than these necessary things. And then he gives them the four rules. So the fact... So, so I guess what I'm saying is it's, the other way I would take this, almost seems like the only other way you could take this, is that they're saying, hey, Gentiles, these are the four sins. In fact, these are the only four sins, right? Because it says we decided to put no greater burden on you than these necessary things. There's just four don'ts. That's all. Now, could that be what it means, that there's just four things that are sins? Yeah, you guys don't seem sure. First, first service wasn't sure either. I'm, I, I assure you, you've committed more than four sins this month, okay? Yes, there are more, right? There've got to be more than four sins. But it looks like he's saying, that's it. These are the only four things to avoid. And, and three of these four things are not obviously uh, sins, at least not on all occasions. If you're familiar with the rest of the New Testament, you know that some of these things, like um, meat being offered to idols or food being offered to idols, that that is something that's sort of like a sometimes sin, right? It's not a sin in every instance. And Paul talks about the situations in which it is and isn't. But one of them is. One of them isn't always sin, right? Sexual immorality. So it's kind of weird that these things all even got mixed together in a list. But let's just say they're all sins. Just let's say if, if you're someone that says, no, no, this is, this is, they were telling the Gentiles, these are the four necessary things you must abstain from. Food offered to idols, from blood, from eating anything that's been strangled, and from sexual morality. Could those be the, the only necessary things? Were they communicating to the Gentiles? Don't do these four things. Now, if you want to lie, that's fine. Cheating, that's cool. All right, stealing, go for it. Murder, be careful, but enjoy, right? <laughs> Is that what they were saying? And just these four things you can't do, right? There's a part of us, well, no, that can't be what they mean. Well, then what does it mean? And we don't have Judas, Silas, Paul, and Barnabas here to clarify it for us. However, we do have the writings of one of those four guys. We have the writings of Paul. And in fact, not only do we have the writings of Paul, we have a particular writing that Paul wrote, as best as I can tell, that he wrote around this time in history that he wrote it not only around this time, but he wrote it to Gentiles, the very same people that this is to, and he wrote it about the same exact issue, that it was Gentiles who were wondering, do you have to be circumcised to be saved? So we have other words about this. So again, back to my original illustration. Could we look at this and go, well, this is what it seems to mean, right? She's not my biological mother. And then, wait a minute, there's other words. What is it that was meant? And so let me just go ahead and show you some of the things that Paul, the person who's commended in this letter, what he says in the book of Galatians. This is Galatians. I'm going to read two sections from Galatians. One is Galatians chapter 2. This is verse 15. Paul says, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul says, no, you're not saved by following all of these rules from the Old Testament, right? Like not eating things that have been strangled with the blood and the... No, we're not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul's reading on this whole thing, his understanding of this, 
is the same as Peter's was in the Jerusalem council. Remember when Peter said, no, we and the Gentiles are saved the same way, right, by faith in Jesus? Paul believes the same thing. So we go, okay, so that cuts out the whole, these are the four things that save you theory. Well, what about the, maybe there's just four sins. Could that be? And my answer to that is no, because if you look at Galatians, and literally same exact book, I'm just flipping one page, okay, same letter talking to the same Gentiles, he lists sins that they are supposed to avoid at the end of his letter. And spoiler alert, there's more than four, okay? More than four sins at the end of the letter. So let me read this to you. This is, he's talking to Gentiles, and he's saying, don't do these things. And here's the list, Galatians 5, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual morality, oh, ding, 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 that was from the other letter, wasn't it? Moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatreds, uh-oh, we're already way past four and we're not halfway through, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I tell you about these things in advance, as I told you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, again, this is not a list of 15 things to do to earn your salvation. He already said earlier in the letter that we're saved by our faith in Jesus. But he's saying, this is what the people who follow Jesus do. And if you are someone who, who says, oh, I follow Jesus, but this is what you do with your life, like you're not part of the kingdom of God. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. We are the people who the spirit of God has come into our life, and we're not going to be living this way anymore. We're not going to be practicing this. But having said that, we got to admit the list here is longer than four, isn't it? It's 15, and it's not, even, it's not even exhaustive. Did you catch that after, after the 15, there was like a, and more, right? It's a, so what is it? Factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing. I, don't even, I didn't look it up. I don't even know what carousing is. I hope I don't do it. Um, <laughs> drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. So you can see he lists 15 things and then goes, and, and all the rest of them. So there's more than 15 sins. So as we look at this, we realize, okay, so that letter, let's go back to the letter now. Here we are, Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem church writes this letter. We know it can't mean these are the four things that save you, and we know it can't mean these are the only four sins. So what are we left with? Well, here's a third option. That these are merely suggestions that were given to the church in order to establish um, better Jewish-Gentile relations. That basically what they were saying to the, to the Christians in Antioch is... We settled the deal. Circumcision doesn't save you. Those people were not authorized. Paul and Barnabas are good. What they were saying is good. What Judas and Silas are saying is good. But if you're going to get along, if you're going to be Jewish people and Gentile people together worshiping God, you've got to realize you've got different backgrounds. And you Jewish people, what you can do to make it easier on the Gentiles is quit saying they've got to be circumcised to be saved. And you Gentile people, it sure would be great if you would stop eating food offered to idols in front of us and eating things that have been strangled and eating, doing these things that we Jewish people have considered dirty for a long time. That this would help with Jewish-Gentile relations, which is what was going on in the church at Antioch. Well, that is, I think, a pretty decent theory, but there's a problem with it. And the problem with it is, one of these four things is definitely not a suggestion. You know which one it is? Nobody wants to say it out loud? Thank you, sexual immorality. It's not wrong to say it. It's just wrong to do it. You can say it, okay? So, sexual morality is not a suggestion. Like, there's no way they were saying, um, and, the, and the Bible doesn't treat it this way. The Bible doesn't treat sexual morality like one of those things that, like, it's fine. Just don't do it around Jewish people, okay? They're super uptight. So, like, don't do it around them because um, they're offended by it. But other than that, you're, you're cool. No, 
There's, that's not, the Bible is really clear on sexual morality. In fact, if you remember, it was on that list in Galatians. Well, then Mario, why, what does, why is this list in there? What does it mean? And here is my official answer to you. I don't know for sure. In fact, I'll go this far. I don't know if anyone on this earth knows for sure. Because the guys that we would ask aren't here right now. But I will give you the two best guesses that I have come across. Here's guess number one. That maybe these were behaviors that were meant to help with Jewish-Gentile relations, and it just so happens one of them is a sin all the time. Or... Some people might say that maybe these four things are actually all one thing. And that is, they were telling these Gentiles, hey, just like Jewish people have a background religiously, you Gentiles have a background religiously as well. You come from these pagan temples. Don't go back into the pagan temple feasts. Don't go back into the, where you eat the meat that's from the strangled animals and there's blood still in the meat because it wasn't drained out and it's offered to idols and you're having sex with the, the temple priestesses or the temple priests. Don't, don't go back into your old way of life. I don't know. It could be one of those. It could be both of those. It could be neither of those. But that's today's passage. Today's passage is the time where Paul and Barnabas, after having their gospel confirmed in Jerusalem, go home, not empty-handed and not alone, but with a letter that took sides in the debate and with two eyewitnesses that confirmed that their gospel was true. And so let me now end with one last question. Sometimes I pretend I'm you and I ask myself questions. Like as I'm writing the sermon, like I just pretend, and I go, Mario, what about this? And so this is the question I asked myself this week. Mario, does learning a passage like this one matter? Like, thank you for teaching it to me. I mean, I guess that was kind of interesting early church history. But does that have anything to do with our lives? Why learn this? Does is this really matter? And my answer to you, Mario, is yes. Yes, this matters. Yes, this applies to our life. I'm going to give you three applications right here. I'll just go through them really quick. These are not really three things I'm adding. I'm just telling you three things you learned today. Here we go. This is what it has to do with our life and why it matters. Number one, today we learn this. When one part of the Bible is hard to understand, we have to go to other parts of the Bible that are more clear. And we interpret the unclear in light of the clear. You learned that today. Number two, the earliest apostles and elders commended the gospel preached by Paul and Barnabas. This means that book like, books like Romans and First and Second Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians are trustworthy. Paul wasn't teaching some whole other religion that he was making up, right? That we can trust what they wrote, that this is the, you know, the, the, they, they said this is the gospel, right? Even the original said this is the gospel, and so Paul and Barnabas are not teaching us some other thing. They're giving us trustworthy documents, that, and that's why they ended up in the Bible. Number three, we can know that the beliefs that we hold, the beliefs that we hold even in the year 2022, do not come out of thin air, but that they were established by Jesus, by his apostles, by their writings, and handed down to us. We are not just believing randoms, right? But rather things that Jesus preserved for us through his earliest followers. And that matters. And that affects our lives every single day.
Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you um, have written down enough. I realize you could have made the Bible twice as long. You could have said more. But you gave us enough that we can know you, that we can follow you. So I thank you for that. And I thank you for these incidents that happened in the first century. I mean, in a sense, I can, I can thank you for Peter and James and John and Paul and Barnabas and Judas and Silas. And I can even thank you for the false teachers in Antioch that caused this whole incident to happen so that we would have this letter and this section of the Bible. And so that we'd know. And so I thank you for what you revealed to us. I thank you for the words you've given us. I thank you for the circumstances that you have caused so that certain words came down to us. We thank you for all this. I pray for those of us in this room that we would follow you, that, we would, like, that our, our faith in you would be built up, that we would trust in you more readily. And when we come across difficult sections in the Bible, I pray you'd help us to be people who don't freak out, but then go, hmm, let me go find more words that I do know what they mean and try to figure this out. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you that we're not saved by circumcision. I thank you that we're saved by faith and by grace. We would never be able to earn it if it was up to us to earn it. I mean, even if there were just four rules, I don't know, if, I don't know that we would be able to do it. I mean, Adam and Eve had one rule. They screwed that up. I bet you we'd screw up four. And in fact, we know. We know there's more than four. Everybody in this room, we know that people have done stuff to us that we don't like, and there's more than four of those things. And we know that the things that people do to us that we don't like, sometimes we do those very things even though we think they're wrong. And we would have to be saved from that. And you sent Jesus to save us from, from the consequences of those sins, and so we praise you, and we worship you, and we thank you for that. And it's his name we pray all of this. Amen.